Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a center for Catholic theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented in July 2019 at the Biennial Conference on Catholicism, Literature, and the Arts, organized in partnership by the Center for Catholic Studies, the University of Notre Dame, and Ushaw College. The following lecture was given by Dr. Elizabeth Powell, Law Retreat Fellow in Theology and Spirituality at Durham University, and is entitled, The Place in the Poetics of David Jones, The Art of the Incarnate Word, David Jones's Painted Inscriptions. So thank you for um, that, that um, highlighting of, um, I think, one of Jones's great significances for us uh, is the way he helps us reflect on what it is to be human. And um, Jones has this amazing appreciation for um, the sense of, to, to answer the question, who am I, will always involve um, speaking about where am I. So this question of place is inseparable from personhood. Now Jones is, um, one of his long-term concerns was the place of the poet in the 20th century. Um, he found this kind of increasingly technological world, <laughs> technological world, that uh, place was being reduced to uh, space or as a mere kind of uh, rest extensa. And I found that through um, working, working with Jones's poetry and his artwork, um, he really cultivates, I think, for us this uh, appreciation for our affinity with place not in general, but specific and particular place, that we always think, pray from particular places just as we eat and drink from particular places. And in this relation to place uh, cultivates a habit of loving attention, which is something that um, I've been learning really through dwelling in Jones's, is a place of Jones's artworks. So um, this morning, I'd like to focus on the particular place of uh, one inscription by Jones. So dwell in the place of uh, Jones's painted inscriptions, and one in particular uh, as a way of reflecting on uh, what it is to be human, a human being uh, for Jones, and um, of a place. So as uh, Tom had mentioned, um, Jones. Uh, is far less um, recognized, I think, still um, than he deserves. Though he's often, he's long has been recognized as one of the most extraordinary artists of the 20th century. Jim Eve, once curator of Tate Modern and the creator of Petals Yard, Cambridge, spoke of him in 1940 as, quote, not only the best watercolorist working in Great Britain today, but by far the best engraver, a poet and writer of genius, and all a most imaginative artist. He worked with excellence across a range, an extraordinary range of mediums, and Jones's painting inscriptions stand in between and bridge his verbal and visual art. So I'm showing here Jones's self-portrait, uh, aptly titled just Human Being. It's one of his uh, rare works that we have really in um, oil. Uh, his friend Jimmy beautifully writes uh, this description of the painting, which I think is an amazing uh, introduction to Jones himself. It says, in this painting, there remains the feeling of a personality, of someone sensitive to an outside world, material and spiritual, of someone with a strange force, which comes not out of the strength of his body, but from the strength of his intention. Eyes, which collect things inwardly, a body still, yet alert, and fingers which are sensitive instruments at his commanding. An ear, too, it also is receptive, and David Jones's more than most. For as long as he could recollect, Jones felt himself called to be a professional artist. By the age of 14, his parents conceded to send him to the Camberwell School of Art 
where he studied until he enlisted as a soldier in World War I. It was, surprisingly, in the context of war that David James's imagination became indissolubly wedded with his Catholic faith. In fact, it was in the war that he came across a scene that I'll go into in a moment that he said made him feel for, um, in, 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 internally a Catholic. So um, it was really the spur of his conversion, uh, which formally happened after the war. On a cold, dark night in the year 1917, Jones left the company of the trenches in search of dry firewood and came across a battered barn. Putting his eye against a crack in its wall, he discovered not the dim emptiness he expected, but rather the warm glow of candlelight, a makeshift altar, and a few communicants celebrating the mass. He writes of the event in a letter to dear friend thus. Just a little way back, that is, between our support trench and the reserve line, I noticed what had been a farm building, now a wreckage in the main owing to shellfire. I thought, now that looks to be most likely the very place there might not only be wooden objects of one sort or another, broken cartwheels or other discarded bits of timber, but with a bit of luck, a wood store, perfectly dry and cut, ready for use. So I went to investigate, and when I came close to the wall and found there were no signs, there were signs of its having been a bit more knocked about than appeared from a few hundred yards away. But there was no door or opening of any sort on that side. But I found a crack against which I put my eye, expecting to see either empty darkness or that I should have to go around to the other side of the little building to find an entrance. <coughs> But what I saw through that small gap in the wall was not the dim emptiness I'd expected, but the back of a sacerdos and a gilt-hued planita. Two points of flickering candlelight no doubt lent an extra sense of goldness to the vestment and a golden warmth seemed by the same agency to lend the white altar cloths and the white linen of the celebrants alb and amice and monopole. <laughs> You can imagine what a great marvel it was for me to see through that chink in the wall. And kneeling in the hay beneath improvised mensa were a few huddled figures in khaki. I felt immediately that oneness between the offerand and his tufts that clustered round him in the dim lit fire. Jones's carefully crafted prose invites the reader to imagine with him what a marvel it was to see through that chink in the wall. The dilapidated barn bore the wounds of war and suggests the plight of the soldiers themselves, a wreckage in the main owing to shellfire, more knocked about than appeared, and on the verge of collapse, allowing for no apparent way in or out. That chink in the wall recalls the chink of a knight's armor, his vulnerable place through which the shaft of a sword may pierce him. Precisely by means of this chink, however, light pours through the wall and into Jones's solitary eye, transfiguring the shell of a structure to a place of communion. Here tufts are found kneeling, huddled and clustered round, still wearing the costume of war, yet no longer on their guard. Wrapped in the robes of this peace-bearing ritual is the sacerdos, or offerand, the one who offers up, akin to the artist for Jones, who offers up signs of things under other forms. It is the light, however, which remains the main agent of the scene, the two flickering points of candlelight, lending their golden warmth to the white of the altar cloths and magnifying the guilt-heed vestments and linens. As Jones represents the scene for us, he recalls not only the events of 1917, which took place under the shadow of war, but the night in which, under the dark shadow of Herod, that other holy and consecrated one was born in a dim-lit fire with its improvised manger. The shepherds, those tufts of the field, gathered round him as did also the mysterious magi in search for wisdom, led by the light of a star. 
akin to these night traveler, travelers, that evening Jones found few resources for physical comfort, but instead discovered within the kindling of a light that would illumine all the years to follow. That night, however, Jones says he felt himself to be as one on the outside looking in. As I looked through that squint hole, I didn't think I ought to stay long, as it seemed rather like an uninitiated bloke prying on the mysteries of the cults. What Jones perceived in that glimpse is the whole world, all times and all places gathered into one unity under the species of those quasi-artifacts, bread and wine. Under the shelter and protection of that dim-lit buyer, all the world is contained because, in the elegantly condensed words for liturgy, he whom all the world cannot contain enclosed himself in thy womb, being made man. For Jones, as his friend Kathleen Rain writes, this is such a rich quote, it's worth coming back to, but while so many moderns redissolve man into the cosmos, with David Jones it is quite the contrary. For him, the whole cosmos is made man when God puts on our human flesh, which is of one substance with the bear and the thick-felled cave fauna and the older and less creaturely dinosaur, an unabiding rock and the terra moral from which all we are made. Incarnational was perhaps for David the most significant word of all. What is capable of being loved and known is God incarnate. In other words, the serendipity of this discovered mass pointed to an enduring importance for Jones. The ubiquity and profligacy of incarnation and sacrament. In each and every created thing, there is a star, the claritas, or secret seed, that guides us with the Magi to wisdom. Some 30 years later, after this decisive personal epiphany, Jones and Vega painted inscription in celebration of the Feast of Epiphany. His inspiration were the words of the preface of the Christmas Mass, recited daily from Midnight Mass on Christmas Day through to Epiphany on January 6th. It reads in full on the back of your handout, actually the first quote. It is truly neat and just, right and availing unto salvation, that we should at all times and in all places give thanks unto thee, O Holy Lord, Father Almighty and everlasting God, because by the mystery of the Word made flesh, the light of thy glory has shone anew upon the eyes of our minds, that while we acknowledge him to be God seen by men, we may be drawn by him to the love of things unseen. In our exploration of Jones's inscription, we'll see how he reincarnates and glosses this text in subtle form, unfolding the depth of its meaning and facilitating for the reader a journey from the visible word to the invisible, the love of things unseen. Its luminous form provides a kind of visual icon or foothold by which one may be gradually, playfully, I think, drawn, slowly inducted into contemplation of these central mysteries of the Christian faith. Mysteries which, in turn, we'll see, illuminate the character of the inscription itself as a participation in and a hopeful performance of them. Herein, we're invited to meditate on the primordial sacrament, that of the incarnate word, by whose radiant beauty or eternal shining forth the eyes of the mind are renewed. This light in the darkness, as we will see, is not an exceptional shining, the interstices of an otherwise dim emptiness, but that light by which all things live and move and have their being. This is a world in which all things are gloriously cracked. Before we turn to this painted inscription in particular, we must understanding, understand something of the art of lettering in general um, and Jones's practice of it in particular. Inscriptions tend to be neglected, I think, as works of art in general, and until more recently, um, Jones's inscriptions uh, as well. But they're of interest not only for the way they use like, classical and religious texts, but um, the way they foster reflection on the relationship between words and the word. It's worth saying at the outset something about the, really the personal nature of Jones's inscriptions. So they were made really for himself and for his friends, um, often given as gifts 
or even as Christmas cards a lot of times. They're one of his few works of art that can be quite um, sort of made for reproduction, actually. So you can take photographs of them and then send them out and with little messages and things. Um, I think I think of them as Jones's really one of the places where this close enactment of this analog between the priest and the poet. Um, Jones was able to you know, mark these sacramental high points in the church calendar or in his friends' lives, um, offering them up over to them. He did re he did regard them as uh, Paul Hills and Ariana Banks um, insist as artworks in themselves and included them in exhibitions. But that interestingly, he never uh, sold them, apparently. So he just kind of kept them out of the circuit of the market. So in orienting ourselves to, to Jones's inscriptions, um, there is very much an art in reading one as much as there is in making one. There are some of the most simple and most difficult works of art to approach. They seem to communicate directly to us. But at the same time, this apparent immediacy is a kind of Achilles heel. As Nicolette Gray writes, people read instead of looking. Paradoxically, these letters are so familiar for people, they don't really know what they look like. So we read for sense, for meaning, and inscriptions are composed of such meaning-bearing signs. Letters, words, and syntactical relations between words that make up sentences, and so on. And inscriptions are meant to be read, to be meaning-bearing, yet they draw to the foreground the physical bodies of the material signifiers themselves as the primary medium of this communication. And this sensitivity to the visual nature of language was really a part of Jones from his childhood. Not only was his, was his father um, uh, involved in the publishing world, print world, um, but also he really, really struggled to read. And, um, more than likely had a form of dyslexia. And so he, he has this wonderful quote saying, I did this process of just staring at books as a child, saying, I know, I know I must somehow make out what those black lines of prints meant. So I think, you know, paradoxically, this, you know, there's very much a sense of looking at words um, before being able to actually read them the way um, most of us do. Even though he was you know, drawing and incredibly, some of his artwork from when he was seven years old is incredibly accomplished. So as a work of art, an inscription may first be taken in simply as a beautiful object. The mind is able to rest from its usual labor of meaning making. It's kind of a discipline to switch oneself off from that in a way. This difficult interpretive work of deciphering signs can be suspended for a time, freeing one to delight in the sensible forms. The shape of the letter is to the calligrapher what the sculpted world of sound is to the poet. Letters, as Eric Gale reminds us in his essay on typography, are signs for sounds. They are more or less, he writes, abstract forms. Hence their special and peculiar attraction for the mystical mug called man. But even as abstract forms, letters are deeply storied things. The settled forms of the English alphabet are the product of long histories of development. If it's fair to say that these forms are settled now, they're by no means static. Except for the classical purist, writes Nicolet Gray, the letter forms are not immutable. She speaks instead of a rich quarry of abstract forms at the disposal of the lettering artist. The basic compositional elements of a given letter admit almost endless variation gathering up all kinds of unconscious connotations. She writes, letters can be weighty or robust as those used in English Regency posters. They can be dynamic and chaotic as in futurist typography, full of swirling mystery as in the complex initials of the German Baroque writing masters. To tend to the body of the letter is to remember it is, in the full sense of the word, a character. So Jones first encountered his, let, his uh, encountered lettering in art school, but it wasn't until meeting Eric Gill at Ditchin Commons that he found in modern times what he was what he felt was a living lettering. In his reflections upon Gill's death, he'd write of his deep respect for him as a letterer thus. One thing is certain: 
As a carver of inscriptions, he stands supreme. There, the workman scaled the heights of pure form, and some of his inscribed stones possess the anonymous and inevitable quality we associate with the works of the great civilization, where an almost frightening technical skill, for a rare moment, is the free instrument of the highest sensitivity, and the word is made stone. Through Gill, Jones came to appreciate the significance of this profoundly incarnational medium, though he would not himself ever work in stone. Instead, he went in a direction all his own. His friend Rennie Haig describes his divergence from Gill thus. Eric would have been speechless had a pupil drawn, a pupil drawn those R's whose tails unblushingly thrust themselves from the junction of bow and stem, the slender S's that look to their neighbor or to the margin for support, the G's whose variety is an essay in calligraphic development, the E's that so craftily combine squareness with rotundity, the whole effect of an inscription like a Loganstone which the touch of a hand will rock, and which yet stands solid and unmoving. The remarkable thing about David's inscriptional work is that there is in it nothing that is purely fanciful. Every shape is determined by the particular evocation required in this place for this thought. In David's case, it produces a mine of illusion, suggestion, remembrance. In Eric's, sure purity of form. Jones's lettering doesn't seek to conform to a classical ideal, but to find, as Haig emphasizes, this particular form for this particular place and evocation. We recall here one of his most magnificent poems, Tutelar of the Place. He praises uh, Mary as, um, uh, with amazing uh, echoes of Hopkins here as well, the mother of particular perfections mistress of asymmetry, patroness of things counter, party, pied, several, protectress of things known and handled. So I think in Jones, it's actually this kind of deliberate um, non-possession of perfect form. That's something, um, it's, yeah, I think maybe to pick up in Q&A, but something to, um, that's really essential to what it is to be human um, as one that's, um, perfect, being perfected by grace, so that in a sense it's uh, not, not needing to, um, or to recognize one's finitude and limitations and, um, and brokenness even, that you're on a journey. Um, uh, he writes of, in that same poem, these made, those who um, lodge with made, mutable, beggarly elements, the unmade, immutable begettings of far, fair height. So Hills and Banks describe uh, this, this uniqueness of um, Jones uh, in comparison to Gill, saying that while Gill conceived of each letter of the alphabet as a unit that could work in kind of any combination, for Jones, um, quote, each letter is not something that might stand alone, but is always shaped in response to its neighbors. So these letters that look to their neighbor for support are, and are shaped in response to the others. Um, there's a really, uh, Dante's Purgatorio 10 through 12 is quite a strong analogy here, I think, between Jones's um, inscriptions and um, this passage where Dante is, he's looking at these finely carved inscriptions on a wall until his attention is diverted to these figures um, below that appear as corbel stones. And slowly his eyes are adjusting through this um, patient looking and discerns that um, what he thinks are, are bent form or bent stones are actually human forms. Uh, the proud penitents uh, weighed under under their load. And Dante, in perceiving them, um, he starts to hear one trying to speak. So he starts taking on their bent form himself, leaning down low to, to listen uh, to someone that turns out to be an illuminator of manuscripts. Um, Dante's line. Um, describes it as being paired up like oxen to move as one. So onward with the burdened soul I went. I think there's a real social character of language that's being thematized um, here explicitly in Dante. I think we might also see it embodied in these very forms of Jones's letters, 
uh, this embrace of the um, foregrounding of the relationality of um, speech. He himself compared to them to soldiers marching. Um, he writes, the space, or as it were, uh, by separating the two blocks of lettering, I tried to keep as straight as possible, but not mechanical or ruled, so that the letters seemed a little bit like soldiers maintaining a dressing on an imagined line, but not mathematically or dead true. Elsewhere, he, he writes of um, space, uh, space itself. He says, space itself, they say, leans, is kindly with ourselves, we who make wide deviations to meet ourselves. This concern for the specific and the particular in Jones's lettering didn't require the invention of new letter forms, however. Making the use of various uh, paleographical texts, Jones chose forms which he states, quote, one, I like the feel of, for all sorts of inexplicable, inexplicable aesthetic, question mark, reasons, and two, forms that evoke something of the meaning of the word in which the letter occurs and the more undertones and overtones evoked, the better. That I take as axiomatic, oh sorry, um, which disclose the more content and form are the one, are one, that I take as axiomatic. So Jones's speech here, I think is, um, there's a paradox in it, in that in a sense, like, like liturgical language, all of his forms and his texts are borrowed, right? So he's not, he never uses his own poetry for his inscriptions. I've been told by um, a professional letterer that um, she said, Jones's style should never try to be imitated. Of course, people do and can do fairly good jobs of it, I think. But she said, no, 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 this is an inimitable style. Uh, so I think this is something quite rich there, especially in relation to um, liturgical speech. Is this borrowed speech, yet that is, has this um, profoundly personal um, character to it. But these unique concerns con contributed to, um, as you can see, Jones's development of a much more playful style when compared to Gill's august elegance. If in Gill's hand, the word is made stone, so we might characterize the spirit of Jones's style through his own mutation of this phrase in his poem, The Sleeping Lord. There's no resisting here. The word is made fire. It's the gradual and sometimes volatile formation of the Earth's stony crust that Jones in this poem is evoking, the fluid processes of successive molting by or melting by molten lava and the gradual molding by water. The embrace of evolutionary process is a fitting analog in many ways to Jones as an artist. The quality by which he judged all work was that it was moving, in his words, not being stuck still. And this judgment equally informs the kind of letter he would become, an embrace of process and contingency in the very form of making them. His primary choice of uh, inscriptions, um, opaque, tend to be opaque watercolor on a, on a white paper, also supports this desire for movement, not only in the resulting letter forms, but in the artist's actual process of making them. It's a very forgiving medium in contrast with stone, wood, or copper engraving. Here, Jones would not design in any detail an inscription at the outset, but he tells us would plan and adjust as he went along. And these many adjustments would then be painted over with Chinese white paint. The paint would embellish the work as a whole, giving further definition to the letters and making the paper itself have vitality. This embrace of process with all its spontaneity of freedom and the, uh, sorry, with all its contingencies and adjustments is the best way Jones felt he could, keep, he could keep this sense of spontaneity or freedom in the overall inscription. I want the thing to look free in some way and to get a certain indefinable feeling, perhaps no more than that I did not want it to look set out in space, but to run on. How remarkable that for Jones, what might be judged as you know, mistakes or easily judged as mistakes are here incorporated into the very process of working such that they become um, the very means in which the work is lent its, um, its, uh, its glow, really, or its luminescence. This, con this concern for the unity of form and content is one of the primary reasons Jones prefers Latin for his inscriptions. As a decline language, it's much more economical than English and lends a monumental, Jones's words, quality to the language suitable, he felt, to the inscriber's purposes. 
Mary Carruthers, in her, in her uh, studies on pre-modern rhetoric, explains how the structure of Latin casts certain habits of the medieval monastic mind, and how the practice of reading a Jones inscription may have a certain resonance with these ways in comporting oneself to Latin. According to Carruthers, in learning to read Latin, the elementary procedure was to build up from the shortest units, letters and syllables, to longer and yet longer ones, words and phrases and sentences. Furthermore, the lack of word divisions in the written page meant the reader, quote, had to analyze the syllables first before they could be glued together in semantic units. Reading on this account is hardly passive, but an active practice of making meaning. As Carruthers explains, it involves recombinant sets of design elements whose units are sub-semantic signs of all sorts that make meanings in constantly varying combinations with other signs. Pattern recognition is thus a key tool or skill in reading for meaning. Still, Jones's preference for Latin is risky, potentially alienating a general modern readership for whom Latin is archaic and unfamiliar. Surprisingly for Jones, this unfamiliarity is precisely its advantage. He writes, for bloats like me who know very, very little Latin, hardly any, Latin has the extra advantage of presenting one with a sort of pattern first, and then only slowly, parentheses, if at all, the meaning of all, or some of the words. He imagines that if one did know Latin fluently, quote, a good bit of the magic goes. Of course, at this point, pre-Vatican II, the mass is still said in Latin, and Jones embraced the strangeness of tongue as contributing to the magic of his participation in the rite. The liturgy itself is not completely transparent, not so immediately or readily consumable. This delay in processing the words directs attention to the patterns of the liturgy and to its dramatic unfolding. It must be lived into. Similarly, not being able to immediately digest the painted inscription is an integral way, part of the way it acts as a formative space. It disrupts the usual ways in which one reads, halting our instrumental relationship to language, causing one to slow down and stay within the signs themselves for a time to recognize it as a mediatory place. It fosters a kind of use that seeks a form of union. By slowing down the process of interpretation, the reader may be more fully inducted into its meaning. She is performed by it as much as she is performing it. So in sum, there's many elements of an inscription which are used to convey meaning and to which uh, we as readers can be sensitive. This overall feel of the inscription as a whole, attention to the details of the letters, the shapes, and their relations to one another, the use of color, and of course the context for which the inscription is made and the texts are drawn. All this loving attention to the details is oriented toward the end of understanding with greater depth or new insight to this text that Jones uh, is embodying or is embodied. Reading in Jones's inscriptions, you might say, is more like a form of meditation or as Mary Carruthers uh, aptly characterizes monastic rhetoric, a craft of making thoughts about God. As such itself, it is work of mediation, facilitating this ascent of the mind from the visible word to the things, to the love of things unseen. So now let's participate in some of this meaning making and journey through this inscription of the preface to the Christmas Mass. So we're saying my journey here, or my reading here, is a journey through the inscription, and I use that word um, quite intentionally, but it's far from finished, and it's certainly not the only route that might be taken through it. There's always, I think, an, an element of discovery and delight, uh, especially in looking um, at Jones's inscriptions or other artworks of other people. I've yet to not um, have other people see something that I've never seen before, even after weeks or years of, of looking at one. So given this, this uh, nature of inscription making as an art of the word incarnated, it's fitting that Jones would make, often make inscriptions for the Christmas season, though notably this is the only one specifically made for Epiphany. Here we can see he retains the Latin of the Roman Missal and selects the central line of the preface framed with a border, a border text drawn from Greek mythology. 
On the back of this inscription, uh, on the original, Jones orients his readers by giving them, giving them this translation that's at the bottom of your handout, along with a few personal notes. He writes that prior to Vatican II, this preface was also used on the Feast of Corpus Christi, a change he laments on account that, quote, it provided the liturgical link between the word made flesh in the stable and what is made present in the mass. That link between the nativity and the cross and its Eucharistic recalling was forged indissolubly in Jones's imagination by that illumined and illuminating scene, which he marveled to see through that chink in the wall. Of the reference to Roman mythology of Minerva and Jove, he adds that, quote, the words around the margin were proposed, I think by one of the pontiffs in perhaps the 16th century, not sure, as expressing the eternal generation of the son from the father. But, he notes, the proposition was not found acceptable. <laughs> Someone has managed to find out where that, which pontiff it was. I think it was propositioned by the Florentine, Florentine humanists. Um, but if you know any more, I'd love to hear, hear about that. So the star here in the right-hand mm -hmm. corner, notably the only sign that isn't a letter, might appear as the star of Bethlehem, which guided the wise men through the night of the eastern sky, recalling the scandalous claim of the gospel story that the very maker of the star which led the wise men to Bethlehem is here made visible, enfleshed in the child over whom the star came to rest. Infinity dwindled to infancy, in the words of Hopkins. The finite visible body of Jesus of Nazareth is the very embodiment of the wisdom itself as Christ the God-man, the one by whom all the stars and all creatures, even his fleshly body, are made and have their being. And I think his choice of Minerva here is wonderful for bringing together that sense of um, if Minerva is a symbol of wisdom, so Christ is Sophia, and Verbi is the Logos, so God of God, um, both. Jones's incorporation of a classical myth as an analog is perhaps uh, particularly apt in a work made for a feast day that celebrates the universality of this light, and Minerva in particular as the goddess of wisdom. This is more than just rhetorical ornamentation. For Jones, the world of culture, as much as the world of nature, is capable of bearing patterns or imprints of divine revelation. We've already seen how the uh, liturgical context of Epiphany can unveil much of the meaning of the inscription, but let's take time to enjoy its appearance. Its beauty is an invitation to dwell at length within it and ruminate on its deeper meanings. It's marked among his other inscriptions for its great sense of openness, space, and movement, as well as the clarity and simplicity. He carefully balances the white or negative space with the delicate and dignified lines and curves of the letters, holding the gaze and the space between them, or almost encouraging the eye to dance back and forth. The letters are, high, are lightly and delicately held on the surface of the canvas as though floating on water. The gaze is invited to roam, resting lightly or only temporarily on a single part. Even the brightly painted verbi, while continually drawing the eye back to itself, also de deflects the final settling of the gaze through its offset position. The lettering is some of the most classical of his inscriptions, though he still avoids uniform uniformity. Note the variation of the capital E's. And he retains this lilting quality in his, in his letters, especially, I think, in those deviant S's lurching towards the right. <coughs> the green and red colors of the Incarnati Verbi add a mood of gaiety and festivity of the Christmas season, while the, uh, in his words, goldish, yellowy, grayish color is often used by Jones to recall the thing oblated or set aside, that which is offered up. The Chinese white highlights these forms throughout and this luminous environment in turn is punctuated by dark black diamonds, binding and delineating the words as the mortar, mortar of syntax. The baseline of the more widely spaced and fulcet, painted in this sharp black as contrast and mystery. Even the gray of the central text lends the appearance of each letter as a carefully crafted stone. Altogether, the whole might suggest something like the facade of a loosely structured wall each letter delicately painted in watercolor and carefully placed as an individual stone through which the eyes are led to the lightness of the paper on which they rest. 
The overall feel of the inscription recalls this poetic imagery in Maritain's art and scholasticism, evoking these, those glorious cathedrals of the high Middle Ages. The architect, by the disposition he knows, buildeth the structure of stone like a filter in the waters of the radiance of God, and giveth the whole building its sheen as to a pearl. In these buildings, even the dense solidity of stone is made a conduit for this liquid luminosity. These tall stone towers are built not to block, but to shelter and channel light. This form reflects a vision of the, war, of the world as filled with the glory of God, where even the most opaque substances are not obstructions, but filters for the rays of this visible and invisible light. The artist of this disposition inhabits and creates a world in which all things are porous. Though on a less grand scale than the medieval cathedral, Jones creates on the matrix of paper and inducts his readers into a glimpse of this world in which what is most true or real is the radiance of the creator shining from eternity through all creation. Its marginal text rises vertically, contributing to the sense of solidity of the left-hand margin, not unlike one of those classical, classical Greek or Roman pillars. Here, the two planes intersect the V of the brightly colored offset, Verbi, interposed between the O and V of the golden-hued Jovis, as though opening and stretching it from its center. A horizontal vertical axis is thus constructed through the juxtaposition of these marginal and primary texts. But so too is each letter related to that above and those beside. Between the letters, I think especially those painted in, Greek, in gray, a strong diagonal pattern emerges. Um, I think there's lots of them, but uh, one to show from the M of the Listerium to the M below the M there, really beautiful um, line. Um, the other direction as well, the M to the I. They appear. So this diagonal relation between the letters is reinforced by the strong diagonals of certain individual letters as well. The centrality of the red V sets precedence here. Its strongly pointed descent, the most simple form or basis of all the letters with the diagonal, the N, X, X, Y, A, M. The intensity and energy of the shape is reinforced throughout the inscription. This careful and beautiful arrangement of the letters on paper are meant to prompt and support the search for meaning, to elicit the desire to know and to understand, which is our first inclination. How then might these shapes, colors, and relations embody the meaning of this text and invite us to journey further through it? Jones seems to have been strikingly intentional in his arrangement of its structure. So this um, inscription he made in 1945 with the same text and then returned to it um, years later, introducing this um, new design and also with this marginal text. Um, in this structure, I think he's relating these two interlocking planes um, as the temporal and the internal. So um, with the vertical text, Minerva Jovis, has to do with these relations within God's eternal being, right? So God in say. This classical analog of the sun is wisdom, eternally begotten of the Father, while the horizontal text concerns the revelation of this mystery to the time to time-bound creatures through the sun's becoming incarnate as the Word. The particular point of conjunction is fittingly this red V of the Verbi, this overlap or union of the horizontal or temporal and the vertical or eternal. In the minimalist form of this V signifies with elegant economy the mystery of the incarnate word in whom the eternal and temporal are perfectly united. Within the horizontal text, too, the wedding of these two realms in Christ is bodied forth. Uh, so on, on this plane, we've got the red verbi is layered or sandwiched between the syllables carn, the Latin root meaning flesh, and tear, the Latin root meaning three or having three, and thus perhaps a gesture uh, or a further recalling to the Trinity. Also in the fact that um, he shows all of his E's in the horizontal script are these straight sort of strong uh, lines, whereas with the tear, it has this curved shape. It's also the same way he uses the E in the, um, 
in the marginal text having to do with the eternal relation. So through these relations among the letters in the horizontal plane, then too, Jones represents this word as participating both the triune nature of God and the material flesh of creation. Within his inscription, this diagonal line inflects the stability of the horizontal vertical structure with its sense of flexibility and movement. It also interrupts the severe ascent of the vertical, perhaps suggesting not a perfect straight ascent from the earth to the heavens, but the more gradual ascent of finite creatures, one which does not leave behind the particular forms as they rise, but rather are perfected along the way. We can gain further understanding of the inscription by looking at it in the context of his long poem, Anathemata, in which he includes it as an illustration. This section of the Anathemata is summed up by the preface of the Christmas Mass, namely, that this new light shone upon all from all time. This is the, the text facing the inscription. From before all time, the new light beams for them with, and with eternal clarities in fulcet and athwart the four times, era, period, epoch, from era, through all orogeny, group, system, series, zone, brighting at the five life layers, species, subspecies, genera, families, order, piercing the escard silt, discovering every stria, each score and macula, lighting all the fragile laminae of the shales. Jones imagines the shining of the light across all time and place through this recitation of scientific categories that would ring in the ear of any biologist or archeologist. As he follows this new light down through the layers of the Earth's crust, this diagonal line reasserts itself once more. Through all the unconformities and the sills without sequins, glorying all the underdapple, oblique through the fire-wrought cold rock diked from convulsions under. Through the slow sedimentations laid by his patient creature of water, whichever the direction of the strike, whether the hate is to the upthrow or the fault normal. This new light traces an oblique line through all the contortions, inversions, and convulsions by which the Earth's varied strata are formed, or as is reference to Hopkins has it, glorying all the underdapple. One might find resonances between the diagonal of the Gothic arch, not only by, quote, looking up at those gusty vaults of the faded green, but by digging deep down in the layered stone of the Earth's crust itself. A haid is a geological term, meaning an inclination of a mineral vein, fault, etc., from the vertical. And Jones may be playing here with the resonance and sound between haid and hades. On the meaning of haid as a fault line, recalling the human tendency to incline away from the vertical or from the good, in this way resonating with, with hades. As he writes in his Art and Sacrament essay, to speak in theological terms, the tree of the cross presupposes the other tree and stretches back to the happy fault of Adam, so that St. Thomas in the Good Friday hymn could write, Ars ut artem phaleret, the art of the cross, follows the fault line of human nature, thereby outdoing the art or schemes of the fall. Reading the inscription in this light deepens the significance of the red and green colors of Incarnati Verdi too, these traditionally festive colors marking the Christmas season and the nativity of Christ also recall God's art or scheme of salvation as the sacramental blood of Christ and the tree on which it was shed, the crux fidelis and dolce lignum of the Good Friday hymn. These are also rich. We can come back to them as well during the, during the Q&A about time. But what of this lux tue claritatis with its golden color tying it closely with the marginal text and by association with the eternal relations of the Trinity. In the preface text, this light lux is shining forth of divine, is the shining forth of divine claritas. Jones simply translates claritas as brightness, and as a reader of Jacques Maritain and Aquinas, 
he was aware of the weighty significance this word carried in the tradition of theological aesthetics. Alongside integrity or wholeness and harmony, claritas is one of the three pillars or classical conditions defining the beautiful. Though these three objective conditions, the beautiful, are frequently referenced in modern works, their Trinitarian context and medieval aesthetics is frequently overlooked. However, as Mariton himself reflects, quote, to establish fully the dignity and nobility of art, we have found it necessary to go back as far as the Trinity. The second person in particular is associated with beauty as the perfect art of the Father, and this passage um, is uh, on your handouts as well from, from Aquinas to Suma. Reading Jones's inscription alongside this fragment uh, illuminates and shines back on the tradition as well. This claritas, or certain shining quality, is according to Mariton, the essential character of beauty. In the Ditchling Press edition of the text, he cites this most beloved remark of Aquinas from his commentary on divine names. He is beauty itself, because he gives beauty to all created things, according to the property of each, and because he is the cause of all unison and all clarity. Indeed, every form, that is to say, every light, is a certain irradiation coming out of the primal clarity, a sharing in the divine clarity. Jones himself considers this line of Dionysius' commentary, quote, the best of sayings, that the beauty of God is the cause of being, the being of all that is. So too, we might say, see the way this tradition illumines Jones' inscription as the ray oculus on, together on one line forms a kind of word picture pairing the ray, R-A-E, uh, on the same lines of that as eyes. So if we read it phonetically, like the English ray, these, and these three long extended lane, legs of the E that jut outward from the A and reach, almost lean toward the oculus, or eyes. On even this minute and particular level, the form of the A-E bodies forth this luminous rain or lightning-like communications that pour into the eyes of the mind. Intriguingly, the very verb of the preface for this act of illumination in full set is paradoxically painted in this black, albeit, or this dark, albeit lively black, rather than a luminous gold, we might expect. And the black is further emphasized by extensive painting of Chinese white around the letter forms. How striking and strange this choice is. Perhaps a reminder that this light descends even as far as the underworld, as the psalmist declares, if I say, surely the darkness covers me, and the light around me become night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. This is not a light which shines through the intricacies of an otherwise dim emptiness. It is the uncreated light who made both night and day. So Dionysius writes in his first chapter of mystical theology of, mystical theology of him who has made the shadows his hiding place. Even more aptly, we might remember in the same chapter when he speaks of the superessential ray of divine darkness, or the brilliant darkness of a hidden, hidden silence, invoking that experience of seeing such a bright light you go blind uh, for a moment, um, so overwhelming. And yet, as uh, Aquinas and Augustine describe us as sort of bats that see, that need our, our eyesight to be very uh, gradually renewed and strengthened. So this V of the verbi interrupting the word, interrupts the word uh, Jovis between the O and the V, as though stretching it from its center and opening toward another. So we might say, the Father's being is not a closed monarchical oneness, but is always already othered, having space within itself for an other. In this identity of the Father, there is already this more than that is the person of the Son. And the juxtaposition, juxtaposition of V's, the red V and the golden V of the Jovis, is further illuminated in light of Aquinas' discussion of the relation of the Son to the Father as essentially one of beauty. The red V imitates or shares in the same form as the golden V, just as the Son has in himself the Father's nature truly and fully, and so is said to be beautiful in the sense of having integrity or completeness in himself. Furthermore, the red V represents faithfully the form of the golden V, and so the two are in right proportion or harmony with one another, just as the Son is said to be the express image of the Father. Finally, Jones's use of color takes on theological significance, as we remember that all things, that we call things bright and color beautiful, as he, he writes. 
And so the third condition of the beautiful, this claritas, is here drawn in. Brightness coincides with what is proper to the sun as he is the word, the light and splendor of the mind. Augustine alludes this in the same text as complete word, the verbum perfectum, from whom nothing is wanting, and the art, as it were, of the Almighty. Thus we may see in this singular bee the form of the beauty of Christ as integrity, proportion, and splendor of the Father. In light of the mystery of the Trinity, the choice of red for the color of this brightness or shining forth here leads to another layer of meaning, suggesting also the love of the Spirit. Quote, brightness coincides with what is proper to the Son as he is the Word. Not, however, just any word, but the Word breathing love, a knowledge accompanied by love. This is perhaps nowhere more beautifully spoken by, uh, than by Augustine and on the Trinity on the bottom of the back of your handout. The kind of word, then, we are now wishing to distinguish and propose is knowledge with love. So when the mind knows and loves itself, its word is joined to it with love. And since it loves knowledge and knows love, the word is in the love and the love in the word and both in the lover and the utterer. And so, he concludes, you have a certain image of the Trinity, the mind itself and its knowledge, which is its offspring and its word about itself. And love is the third element and these three are one, and are one substance. By virtue of this complete union, joy, the property especially associated with the Spirit, arises. In the Godhead, this love is perfectly realized as the resting of the Father and the Son, and the Son and the Father. The beautiful relation of the Father and the Son is thus also a joyful relation. This is no stony, static imaging, but one of ongoing effulgence. In the simple form of the singular red V and its relation to the whole of which it's a part, we find shining forth this mystery of the Trinity as eternal, beautiful, and joyful. Venturing through its many layers, we discover through its form the revelation of the Son as Claritas and the Spirit as Caritas. It's by the same agency of this loving word of the Father, the Verbum Cordis, that the eternal circling of the triune life of God opens out to a radical otherness in the act of creation bringing into being those creatures who are not God, but receive their being as gifts. By his word or son, Aquinas states with great economy, the Father is uttering himself, or creatures, and equally that by the Holy Spirit or love, preceding Father and Son, are loving both each other and us. All creatures are words of the Father, spoken and redeemed in love. So just by way of um, conclusion, Imitation, participation, and Trinitarian unity constitutes the full dignity of art for Maritana Jones. For Maritana, the beautiful work of art is, quote, this work resplendent with the glitter or the brilliance, the mystery of a form in the metaphysical sense of the word, a radiance of intelligibility and truth, an irradiation of the primal effulgence. This glitter or mystery of form is not drawn ex nihilo from the artist's mind, but is perceived by her in the heart of things already made. So Maritana, it is his eye and his mind that have perceived and disengaged it, and it must itself be alive within him and have assumed human life in him, live in his intelligence and in, with, an, sorry, with an intellectual life, and in his heart and flesh with a sensitive life for him to be able to impart it to the matter in which he is doing, in the work he is doing. The mind must become one with that which it knows, a union which requires not only knowledge, but love. The artist imparts that knowledge to another thing, as though the offspring of her soul and mind, coming to know it better through immersion in this very process or act of making it flesh. Artifacts are the fruit of this inner word breathed in love. The work of art overflows from this inner love and knowledge, and so is profoundly personal. So Maritana again, art's most fundamental demand is that the word made, the work make parent, not something else already made, but the spirit from which it proceeds. As God makes created participations of his being exist outside himself, so the artist puts himself, not what he sees, but what he is, into what he makes. In other words, art reveals the world anew through, not despite the particularity of the artist, Rowan Williams wonderfully summarizes this philosophy thus, though divine creation cannot be imitated, 
what it does is define the nature of a love involved in, ma in the making. It is both the gift of self and the gift of self. That this is not just a Christological, but more fully a Trinitarian participation is crucial. It's not only the representing of form, but also this um, aim of sharing this in love. There's great danger and potential for abuse in the quest for truth becomes separated from love, and so also when love is separated from truth. It seems to be this kind of Trinitarian logic that's the source of William's gloss on Gill's famous line, look after goodness and truth and beauty will take care of herself. Williams emphasizes, it's not so much that if you look after truth, beauty will look after itself, as that if you work with this sort of love, beauty will look after itself. Not just the word made stone, we might say with Jones, but the word made fire. <laughs>